Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, have a little prayer, get everybody out of the kitchen. My gosh. (laughs) This place tripled in attendance just by getting everybody out of the kitchen. There's got to be something about that somewhere in Second Hesitations or Third Paul or somewhere like that. Okay, well, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, we have your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's your word that sheds light upon every area of our life, everything that we think, everything we do, all that man is involved in as a creatures under the uh, your authority, and you have given us a framework for thinking about all things in your word. Father, it takes courage to be able to supplant the human viewpoint of our own soul that's our the comfort zone of our sin nature with the truth of your word. And we pray that as we study these things tonight that you'll help us to uh, honestly face the things that are going on in our own lives and our own souls under the scrutiny of God the Holy Spirit and to put these things into application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There is a handout. Now, I don't want everybody running out there now. There'll be plenty later on. We had a hundred runoff, and that's a couple more than are here. Uh, Randy Price, Dr. Randall Price, sent me this six-page, two, four, five-page handout that he put together on the Jesus Family Tomb fact sheet. So for those of you who want to get good hardcore data on the related to this special that um, uh, James Cameron and Simcha Jacobovici put out on the Discovery Channel the other night, this will give you the a lot of good information. It's um, very helpful. I went through this yesterday, and there's a lot of uh, helpful information in here. One of the things I thought was interesting was that I'm making such a big deal about the fact that there's somebody named uh, Jesus on the ossuary, and he has a reference in here to James Charlesworth of Princeton Theological Seminary, who says that he has a first century letter that was written by someone named Jesus, addressed to someone else named Jesus, and witnessed by a third party named Jesus. So Jesus was a very popular name in the first century. So just because it shows up on a tomb, and he gives better statistics and correct statistics on how uh, likely it is that you would have the frequency of these names uh, 
uh, in a tomb in any given family. And it's, it's very likely there were very, very common uh, names. 20% of the women in Israel were probably named Miriam, which is translated Mary. So it's very likely that this, that you would find all these names in the tomb. But Randy gives a lot of good information in here. So be sure to pick up a copy from the front before you leave. We're going through Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 47. It's a fascinating chapter from a number of aspects, but it takes a little bit of a break from the major emphasis that we've seen in the last three chapters. So before we go forward another chapter, I want to review what we've studied in the last few chapters, the overriding doctrine that's there, and that is the doctrine of forgiveness. So important to understand this doctrine because it is consistently one of the most difficult things for human beings to do, and that is to forgive and forget the harm, the difficulties, the uh, insults, the hurts, the pain that other people bring into our lives. And to, it is so easy for us to succumb to arrogance and self-absorption and focus on uh, the injustice that's done, the rejection and everything else. So let's just take a little bit of time before we get into our chapter today to focus on this and just kind of summarize what we said. In terms of the Hebrew words that are used for forgiveness, we have three. And I'm going to use the this gadget because this was one of those days where God was testing me and about 2 o'clock this afternoon, 1.30, the LCD screen on my laptop went black. So I had to spend the rest of the afternoon on the phone with Dell. And I knew God was being gracious to me because the person who answered the phone at the helpline was an American who spoke American English as a first language. And after that, I was just happy. We just sailed right through that test. Okay, the first Hebrew word that we're looking at here is this word, nasa. N-A-S-A. And that's not NASA. That's NASA, and it basically has the idea of lift up or carry, and its uses all relate to that basic core semantic uh, range. That's its literal sense. Then it comes to being used in various metaphorical senses in terms of lifting up uh, lifting up the head or the eyes in terms of a, as it represents a certain attitude. The second sense of meaning that this word has is the idea of carrying something, uh, literally carrying something, and then that's transferred to the idea of bearing guilt or carrying punishment. And so it is a word that is often used to uh, teach and to talk about substitutionary atonement, how the Messiah was to carry our sins or to bear our sins. 
And that, of course, leads to the third category, which is the idea of taking something away. And it was used uh, literally in the sense of taking away, uh, taking something away in Genesis 27.3 or taking a wife in Ruth 1.4. But it also has the idea of taking away in the sense of forgiveness in Genesis 50 verse 17, which is right in our context. Everything that we're studying here leads up to that event when Joseph's brothers ask him to forgive them, and Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we see elements of that forgiveness all the way through this particular section. But I think that has, that's the main idea, is to uh, carry something away, to lift something away, to remove it, that that's what forgiveness is, is that we're going to let it, let something go. That somebody may have hurt us, it may have been illegitimate, it may have been wrong, it may have been unfair, unjust. It may be the most egregious form of injustice or unfairness. But forgiveness means to let it go. The next word, the Hebrew word that is used for forgiveness is the word kafar. Now this is the word that is typically understood to relate to atonement. K-A-P-H-A-R. It is the root, the, the verb is the root for the term Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And Kafar means to make atonement. Atonement's a word you don't find in the New Testament. You really only find it in the Old Testament. One of the ways in which it is frequently translated in the Septuagint is with the Greek word katharizo. And katharizo, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-Z-O. Katharizo means to cleanse or purify. That's the word we find in 1 John 1, 9. If, God's, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is really the main idea that you have in the whole function of confession. The whole operation of confessing sins has to do with cleansing or purification from sins. We get our word um, cauterize from the word katharizo. Sometimes it used to be translated cover. There's been a lot of study on this word lately, a lot of uh, technical information, but it seems like the idea really isn't to cover sin. The main idea that, especially as the rabbis understood it when they were translating uh, the Old Testament into Greek in the 3rd century B.C., is the idea of cleansing, which really opens up our understanding of a lot of those, those sacrifices in the Old Testament They were related to dealing with post-salvation sins to make atonement for cleansing. It would be comparable to why we confess our sins uh, after we're saved. And then the third word that's used in the Hebrew for forgive is the word salach. Salach, which has that idea of... I keep forgetting I have to turn this. There we go. Here we go. Salak. And Salak has the idea 
of forgiving, pardoning, spare, and it is used a number of times in the Old Testament to relate to uh, God pardoning or releasing someone. It is used almost exclusively with God as the subject, God's work of uh, forgiving or releasing somebody from a debt. That's another element that's in the idea of forgiveness. Afiemi, as we get into the New Testament word, is the releasing somebody from a debt, freeing them from a debt. Uh, once again, that idea of letting something go. So that's our, that's our Greek word, which is a word we find in 1 John uh, 1 9. Afiemi. A P H I E M I. Afiemi. Now, what does that mean? What's our conclusion? It means that when we're the object of any kind of offense, we need to learn to step around it, to let it go. Now, that's easy in some cases. It's much more difficult in other cases. We have to learn to let it go. Now, we have to remember that only God can forgive sin. When David prayed to God for forgiveness in uh, Psalm 51, after the adultery with Bathsheba, the conspiracy to kill Uriah, he said, Father, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Didn't he sin against them? No, sin by definition is a violation of God's character and God's law. Therefore, the only person that we can ever sin against is God because it's his law, his standard, his character that we violate whenever we sin. Now, when we commit sin in fractions of God's standards, that always has a collateral damage in the human realm. There's always collateral damage with people we know, people we associate with, and therefore it is necessary to go to them and also to seek forgiveness in those areas where we have offended them, where we have done things that hurt them. When somebody comes to us and they are uh, seeking forgiveness, sometimes it gets redone. There are people who continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. They get mad at us or they're short-tempered or they're just lazy or are insensitive or inconsiderate, whatever it is, and you get tired of saying, okay, I forgive you. Yet the Scriptures emphasize that there's never a time when you don't forgive somebody. This is emphasized in a couple of different passages in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 18, for one, that is where uh, Peter is asking the Lord, how many times do I forgive someone who sins against me? And Jesus says 70 times 7 in Acts, I mean, Matthew 18, 27, uh, 32, and 35. That is the emphasis. You don't stop. And we have a couple of examples in Scripture to teach us about forgiveness. And the first example that we have in the Scripture is that of, of Joseph. Because with Joseph, we see how, how he was maltreated by his brothers, how they sought to kill him. They hated him. They wouldn't even speak to him. There's just all kinds of things that are going on within the family dynamic as they express their hostility, their anger, their resentment, their jealousy of Joseph. And then they conspire against him and they're going to kill him. And then they decide, oh, let's not kill him. Let's just make a buck off of him and let's sell him into slavery. Now, Joseph went through a lot of 
personal suffering and indignities as a result of that. But as he works through it, applying doctrine and understanding grace, he gets to that point where he can let it go. And he achieves a divine viewpoint framework that even though people may have wrong motives and they may hate us and despise us, God is still in control, Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good. So he's able to conclude, which is a principle that we can arrive at much quicker now because we have Joseph as an example, that even though people have wrong motives, sinful motives, arrogant motives, they hate us and they maltreat us, God meant it, they meant it for evil, but God means it for good. There is a purpose in that. Then we come to specific teaching related to uh, related to forgiveness in the New Testament, Matthew chapter six, in the Lord's ta- in the Lord's what's called the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer because the Lord doesn't need to pray and ask for forgiveness because of His impeccability. But in Matthew six twelve, we have the phrase "Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors." So we are there. It points out that there is not only the the believers to go to God for the forgiveness of sins, but just as we go to God for forgiveness, we need to also forgive others. And that is restated two verses later in a specific statement by the Lord as he's questioned about that by his disciples. And he says if, to the disciples, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you don't, he won't. And what that's talking about is that if you continue to harbor grudges, resentment, hostility, anger against somebody, then when you confess sin, if you are at the same time, that's the critical word there, at the same time still involved in mental attitude sin, you're not going to ever get back in fellowship. You have to forgive. Now, we, it takes time. I pointed that out in terms of using a real, real life example, the process that Joseph goes through. It takes time. Sometimes we'll forgive him for 30 seconds and then uh, we're going to be enmeshed in mental attitude sins for another hour or two. Then we're going to forgive him for 30 seconds. And when we confess other sins during that time when we confess that sin, then we're back in fellowship. But we... Sometimes we're reminded of that circumstance. We get angry and resentful and our feelings hurt all over again. And we can, we can bounce in and out of fellowship over it. But the process is that we, we have to learn to grow through that particular situation. It doesn't mean when Jesus is teaching, he doesn't mean, well, you have to reach that point where you're never going to get angry or resentful about that person again and you truly forgive them forever and a day and then God will finally uh, forgive you when you confess your sins. Well, how in the world are you ever going to grow spiritually enough to truly, genuinely forgive somebody if you're not able to do it in the power of God the Holy Spirit? So obviously, the text can't mean that until you uh, apply your own works and pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and solve the sin problem on your own apart from the Holy Spirit, then then God will finally forgive you. That's just that's just ridiculous. We have to. Apply, that's where the analogy of Scripture uh, comes into play. But our Old Testament example on forgiveness is Joseph. The New Testament example is Christ on the cross. When Jesus Christ is on the cross, where he has been 
tortured by the Roman soldiers, where he has been beaten, where he has been uh, whipped, where the skin has literally just been stripped off his back by the um, uh, flagellum that the Romans used. And as he's gone through all of this pain and abuse and ridicule, he's able to look at those men and pray, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, that's the, that, those are the two ba- core models in Scripture for what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness doesn't mean that they're not going to do it again or that I'm not going to put myself in a position of vulnerability again. Now, let's look at those two examples from that vantage point. When Jesus is on the cross, he has made himself vulnerable to the abuse of the Roman soldiers because he understands that God's plan and purpose for his life is of such a magnitude that he is to put himself in that position and go to the cross and be abused. You think of the Apostle Paul in a similar example as Paul, as a missionary, is going to all of these various cities. He's going to Lystra and Iconium and Derbe on his first missionary journey Later on, he's going to Ephesus, he goes over to Greece, he goes to uh, Philippi, he goes to Berea, he goes to Thessaloniki, he goes to all these different places. And what happens? Well, in 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he gives this grocery list of how many times he was beaten, how many times he was thrown in jail, how many times he was abused, how many times he was left for dead, how many times he was... He's thrown in jail. How many times he's shipwrecked? Now, if you apply human viewpoint rationale, which is based on our own an understanding of our own self-importance that that we shouldn't be treated poorly, we shouldn't be treated in an inappropriate manner, then we're, you're going to last five seconds in terms of Christian ministry and in terms of Christian service, because as soon as you go into uh, any kind of mode where you're going to serve the Lord. The whole cosmic system and the angelic conflict is just going to paint a target on your rear end and everything is going to come after you. And you don't deserve it. So we say, well, I don't deserve this. We've just slipped right over into arrogance. And Paul never does that. He recognizes that as long as we're there to serve the Lord, there's that higher goal, that higher purpose that mitigates all other circumstances, and that's what the Lord does. But on another In another dimension, in another realm, we go back to Joseph because Joseph's situation is what fits the framework that many of us deal with when we uh, have to face the fact that there are people we work with who who stab us in the back, that there are people that are our friends, our family, that do things that hurt us, uh, everything from extreme cases of, of sexual abuse and physical abuse to just uh, treating us without respect, minimizing us, diminishing any contribution that we have, all these kinds of things. And then we have to uh, analyze how far we're going to trust them. And so we saw those two different aspects with Joseph. Number one, he had forgiven his brothers. He had let it go. He wasn't holding it against them. When they showed up in front of him, they had no idea who he was as the vizier of, of Egypt. But he knew exactly who they were. But he is not controlled by any mental attitude sin. It's gone. It's not there. He's let the past go completely. He has stepped around it. It doesn't, he, there isn't even the hint 
that he is struggling with anger, resentment, bitterness, anything like that. But he knows who he's dealing with. And so he he has what some people would call common sense, but I don't think common sense is very common. He just he recognizes that he can't trust himself to untrustworthy people. And so before he can reveal who he is to his own family, he needs to find out if they have gotten past their resentments and their hostility and their jealousy and their small-mindedness and self-absorption. And so he takes them through all these various uh, steps and tests to see if they're worthy of trust. And that's where we need to be. It's, it's, it's using wisdom in relationships. On the one hand, you have forgiveness, which says, I'm not going to let whatever it is that person did to me control my present mental attitude. Why should I let them get me out of fellowship? Why should I let them cause uh, me to not apply doctrine and to mess up my whole life by matching sin with sin? Can't do that. So what they what what you have to do is let it go. It's in the past. It doesn't matter what they've done. It's in the past. Let it go. Leave it in the hands of the Supreme Court of Heaven. God's not going to let you watch what He does. That's what the faith rest drill is all about. One dimension of it. You're going to trust God so that the reality of God's justice is more real to you than your lack of experience in witnessing it. We don't get to see that. But see, God knows just where to, where to test the individual, where to put the pressure, where to, where to uh, apply the adversity in that person's life so that they come under divine discipline. And God also operates with them in grace just as he does with you and me in grace. Because there's a lot of things we've done that there's somebody out there saying, you know, I'm just going to rely on the Supreme Court justice to take care of Robbie Dean. So God's dealing with me in grace. And he's dealing with you in grace, just like he's going to deal with that person in grace. And if God's going to stop dealing with all of us in grace, then we're all in trouble. And that takes me to the last point of review, and that is that forgiveness is related to grace orientation. Forgiveness is related to grace orientation. Ephesians 4.32 is almost always translated this way. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Except the word there that's translated forgave is not afiemi. The word that is translated forgive in that passage... is the verb charizomai. C-H-A-R-I-Z-O-M-A-I. From the root, charis is the noun for grace. It emphasizes graciousness. This word is used a number of times in the New Testament, and it's translated forgiveness because that's the sense. It's to deal with somebody on the basis of grace. Be kind to them. Do they deserve your kindness? No. But the more someone doesn't deserve your kindness, the more 
we should be kind to them, the more we should treat them uh, in a manner uh, where we are dealing with them in goodness, in gentleness, with mercy. Because the standard is to deal with them in grace just as God dealt with us in grace. He never dealt with us on the basis of what we deserved. If he did, we probably wouldn't have seen the light of day very long. We'd have just gone straight to the lake of fire. God doesn't deal with us on the basis of what we deserve. He deals with us on the basis of who he is and what Christ did on the cross. And that is the model. That's the standard. To treat everybody, no matter how rude they are, no matter how mean they are, no matter how hateful they are, no matter how abusive they are, to deal with them on the basis of grace. Treat them on the basis of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. Never on the basis of of the fact that it hurts us and they just don't understand how wonderful we are and I'm just going to get back at them. That's our sin nature talking. And so Joseph is the example of that and that's what he has demonstrated and in terms of his relationship with his brothers, he, they, have, they have now achieved reconciliation. He's revealed himself to his brothers as to who he is, and they have gone back to the land of Canaan. They've retrieved Jacob. They've retrieved their wives and their children and all of their servants, and the whole group has now moved with them to, to Egypt. As we come to this section in chapter 47... The emphasis here is on Joseph's wisdom as a blessing to both his family, the descendants of Abraham, and to the Egyptians. Now, I want to keep that in mind. If we interpret Genesis correctly, because there's some things that go on in this chapter that make it look as if Joseph is cruel or if Joseph is making some decisions that are just kind of off-center in terms of how we might understand the role of government. But... You will avoid all of that if you understand the principle that everything in the Bible after Genesis 12, especially everything in Genesis after Genesis 12, has to be interpreted within the framework of the Abrahamic covenant that God's promise of land, seed, and blessing for Israel. He's promised them land. He's promised them, Abraham, a a group of descendants that will be more numerous than the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And he has said, you will be a blessing to all people and that God would bless everyone through Abraham. So what's going on here with Joseph must be understood in terms of blessing. But it has some interesting consequences because as I pointed out a long time ago, when we first got started in Genesis, is one of the major themes, the structural themes in Genesis, is blessing and curse. And often you have the two work together. That as God is blessing one group, the other side of the coin is that there is cursing or divine judgment. And that is happening here. As Joseph is not only the source of blessing and providing uh, for the Egyptians so that they can just survive this horrible famine, at the same time that is providing a judgment on them for their idolatry, their paganism, and their rejection of God. And that is the backdrop for understanding this passage. So just just review a little bit what's happening at the end of chapter 28. Joseph comes to the brothers and he says, this is what we need to do. We're going to have an interview with Pharaoh, but we need to position ourselves so that we are in 
an area of good real estate where we as shepherds and uh, men who were involved in raising cattle and they were all involved in husbandry of some sort, that we need the best real estate. And the best real estate for that, especially at this time of the famine, is going to be up in the delta area of the Nile. This is where the land of Goshen was located. Because of the flooding of the Nile, this is extremely fertile land. Even in this time of famine, there would still be uh, growth. There would still be grass. There would still be the necessary forage for the sheep, the goats, and the cattle. And so Joseph wants to position them in the very best location and the best real estate for what they're going to do. There's a lot of wisdom there. Now, how are we going to approach the Pharaoh in such a way that he will give us this land? And so he is not being manipulative here. He is being wise in how do we present this in such a way so that the Pharaoh will do that which is best. And so he he begins to instruct them in verse 31. He said, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan come to me, and the men are shepherds. For their occupation has been to feed livestock. They have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be. Once I tell them this, this is what Pharaoh will do. So uh, He will ask you, what is your occupation? So I will tell him that you are shepherds. See, the subtext here is that Egyptians hated shepherds. They did. They, Egyptians were extremely uh, fastidious. They were very clean. They shaved their heads. They bathed. Shepherds are dirty. They're out in the fields. They smell like the cows and the sheep and everything else. And and the Egyptians just didn't want to be around shepherds. So there's a a method to this because Joseph also knows that it will segregate the family of Jacob from intermingling with the Egyptians. So he's going to tell the Pharaoh their shepherds, and then when Pharaoh asks you, what's your occupation? Emphasize the fact that you have your occupation has been with livestock from youth even till now, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, they're not lying about this. This is what they do. He just wants to make sure that they say it right and put the emphasis in the right spot. It's just a matter uh, of wisdom. So in chapter 47, then, in the first 12 verses, we see Joseph's wisdom in handling the situation with Pharaoh. We're told in verse 1, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh, said, My father, my brothers, their flocks and their herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and they're in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers, presented them to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to his brothers, See, this is exactly what he told them to do. He, he goes, he tells Pharaoh who they are, where they've come from. He takes five of his brothers, and Pharaoh asks, What's your occupation? They say, Your servants are shepherds, we and our fathers. This is what we've done generationally. Don't think you're going to say, okay, well, let's try to find something else for you to do. This is who we are. They're emphasizing that. And so Pharaoh spoke to Joseph and said, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. So to put them in Goshen. So Joseph has presented the circumstance in such a way that they get the best land. They're given the best land from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's assuming... So, see, this is the problem with making assumptions. 
You know the old saying, assume, A-S-S, you and me. Don't make an ass out of you and me. Well, he's made an assumption here. And the assumption is that the other 11 brothers are just as wise and mature as Joseph. But we're not, he doesn't get disabused of that notion. Joseph uses that for their benefit. Because the Pharaoh says, if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So they're elevated. He opens the door for Joseph to elevate his brothers to key positions in the administration. We're going to put them in as the undersecretary of agriculture in relation to sheep and undersecretary of agriculture in relation to cattle and undershepherd of, of agriculture in relation to goats. Okay, so that's that's how he's setting it all up. So Joseph then brings in his father Jacob. Interesting situation is Jacob, the elderly patriarch. He's 130 years old at this time. And he's going to sit down across from Pharaoh. The most powerful man in all of the ancient world was the Pharaoh of Egypt. He was the personification of the state he was considered Egypt. Nobody else really mattered, and his power is only going to get greater as a result of what happens in this chapter. And so here you have Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, the one who has wrestled with God, sitting down across from the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh asks him how old he is. He says he's 130 years of age. And then in verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He prayed to God a commendation to commend Pharaoh. The blessing doesn't mean he blessed him, he waved his hand in the air and say, bless you, my child. It's the idea of offering a prayer of commendation to God that God would indeed prosper the person uh, for whom he was praying. So we're told at the beginning, in verse 7, that when he brought his father in, that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then after they have this conversation, in verse 10, Jacob blesses Pharaoh again as he leaves. So he brings a spiritual emphasis to his meeting with Pharaoh, which indicates that Jacob assumes a leadership role in how the conversation's going. He takes the initiative to pray for the Pharaoh, both as he comes in and as he leaves. It's probably just a very short, short prayer. So then in verse 11 and 12, we see, the again, the wisdom of Joseph as he gets the family situated in the area of Goshen. Verse 11, we read, Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, land of Ramses, which is an anachronism. It wasn't called that until sometime later, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, what's happened here is that Joseph establishes the family and they possess land. They own land. They are landowners. They, they are going to have wealth and begin to accumulate wealth because God is blessing them through Joseph's wise leadership. Now, God is also blessing Egypt because of Joseph's wise leadership. At the very beginning, Joseph was given the ability to interpret those two dreams by the Pharaoh, that there would be seven years of plenty and then seven lean years. And Joseph put together a wise plan in order to handle the future events. And the principle there is that it is not only good, but it is wise for believers 
to plan in terms of future necessities and future emergencies by laying aside money in savings accounts to prepare for the future, to prepare for times when you may be unemployed, to prepare for times when you may be ill, to prepare for times of retirement, later on when you're older in life, that this is wisdom. And that is what they have done because having the financial means at your disposal is a way of having a level of independence and autonomy. If you don't have money and you have to work when you're 75 years of age, you do not have a whole lot of freedom. You're not going to be able to, uh, usually not able to make a tremendous amount of money in a lot of cases. And there's so many cases that I've seen over the years of people who, for one reason or another, either never accumulated any wealth when they were younger, never saved, or it got lost uh, somehow through foolish decisions on their part or just things that happen. And then it's very difficult to recover financially when you get older. And there's a, with the loss of finances, with the loss of money, there's a loss of freedom and a loss of independence. So this is very important. Now, this is exactly what's going to happen in this chapter because the Egyptians are going to lose everything, including their finances, including all their money, and they're going to lose their freedom and all their liberty and all their possessions because God is judging them because of their idolatry, because of their failure to uh, follow the gospel as it was made available in the Old Testament, and because they have, they're worshiping Pharaoh. They are, God often in his discipline gives people more of what they think they want as a replacement to God. And they've already deified the Pharaoh. They've got this whole uh, Egyptian pantheon thing going for them. And they want, uh, that's the direction they're headed. So God is going to say, okay, we're just going to, I'm just going to give you more of that as your discipline. And I'm going to make Pharaoh even more powerful And as part of the discipline on their nation, they're going to come into complete servitude to Pharaoh, a servitude that is going to go on for hundreds of years because of their idolatry. Now, Joseph isn't the one who is administering this from that vantage point. Joseph is simply trying to keep them alive. But this is how God works through the historical circumstances, is that in order to keep them alive... They have to give up their freedom. They have to give up all their possessions. So we're coming to about the sixth year in that seven years of famine. And the Egyptians come to Joseph because there's no bread in the land. The famine's been severe, verse 13, and Joseph has gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt. They've paid for everything. That's what that means. He's not going out and gathering up all the money, the point is that as people are coming to the storehouse to buy grain, all the money is coming into the treasury of the Pharaoh. So the people are being left without any money. They, they have nothing left. They're completely impoverished. Joseph gathers up all the money found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they had bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And the purpose here is not to make Joseph wealthy. He recognizes the principle, going back to the first divine institution of human responsibility, 
that the individual has to be responsible for his own welfare. Joseph is not going to start giving them a free lunch or free dinner or the free next year. He recognizes the principles of, of human government, that the government is responsible to maintain a sound economy. Joseph is operating on sound economic principles. He is not putting the government in debt. The government has stored up resources for the future, but the people have not saved. The people have not stored up uh, savings for the future. So when the crisis comes, the government is in a good position because of Joseph's wisdom, but the people are in a position of weakness. And because they are operating on their uh, arrogant, nearsighted view of life, when the crisis comes, they end up losing their freedom and becoming enslaved to the government. Verse 15 we read, So when the money failed, that's defined in context as when everybody runs out of money. Nobody has any money left. There's, their bank accounts are all empty. Their savings accounts are empty. All the CDs are cashed in. There's nothing left for them to use to buy grain. And so they came to Joseph and said, give us bread. Why should we die in your presence? The money's failed. And Joseph says, okay, we're going to go to the barter system. I'm not going to just open the storehouses and let you run in there and take all the grain you want. You still have livestock. You still have sheep, cattle, goats. We're going to trade the animals that you have for grain. And so they, they trade all of their animals for grain. So now the uh, biggest uh, uh, land husband, I mean, animal husbander in Egypt is the Pharaoh. He owns all the cattle, all the sheep, all the goats. And people don't own anything anymore, but they have bread and they survive for another year. And that year ends. They survive because of Joseph's wisdom. They don't. Sur- they lose everything because of their foolishness and their failure to save. Then the year ends and they come to Joseph for the last year. This would be the seventh year, and say, "We won't hide from my lord that our money's gone." Obviously, he knows that. My lord also has all of our herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my lord but our bodies and our lands. In other words, the human capital. And the land, that's all that's left. So what are you going to do with this? And so Joseph says that he will buy all their land. So Pharaoh comes in and he purchases all the land so that the state now owns all of the land in Egypt. And the people don't own anything. They don't own any cattle. They don't own any livestock. They don't own any land. Pharaoh or the state owns everything. And so they have gone into a willing servitude, a debt servitude like an indentured, like being indentured servants. They have done that willingly and they've given up their freedom because God in discipline brought this famine on Egypt and the result is it, it will enslave the entire nation under a religious tyranny and a political tyranny and that's the result of their negative volition. So he And there's also another shift that takes place. Just like uh, whenever there are major crises in finances, there are numerous other changes that take place in society. We can think back to the Great Depression, the end of the 20s and the 30s, and how that affected 
uh, and increased the momentum of movement from the farms to the cities as people were looking for jobs and trying to survive. It affected uh, many other area institutions in American life. So in verse uh, 20 we read, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. And at the end he said, uh, excuse me, verse 21, As for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. So there's a massive migration from the farms to the cities. There's an increase in urban growth. The only exception was that related to the priests of the false religion of the Egyptians. And because they were already taken care of through a separate deal with Pharaoh who provided the rations for the priests. So once the... uh, People had moved into the cities. Joseph said to them, verse 23, Indeed, I bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Now I'm going to give you seed, and we're going to lease the land back to you under a tenant farmer system. But he's very gracious in the way he does it. It looks like how horrible. Joseph just took away their freedom, took everything from them. But he does this in a, in a manner designed to help them in order to... in order to... Uh, help enable them to survive. The language that's used throughout this section emphasizes Joseph's uh, care and concern for the people. And here he sends them back to, to, to sow the land, and he says in verse 24, it shall come to pass in the harvest that you will give one-fifth to Pharaoh, 20%. The standard operating procedure of tenant farming in the ancient world was 30 to 50%. In some cases, as much as 80% went to the government, and the tenant farmer only kept 20%. So in this particular case, Joseph is being extremely gracious to the people. They, they will farm the land, and they will only give 20% to the government and keep the, other, uh, keep the other 80%. In fact, I was talking with a friend of mine today who owns um, some land over in South Louisiana, and she told me that she leases this out to tenant farmers and she gets 20% and they keep 80%. So this is pretty standard even for America that the landowner, uh, the, the landowner keeps 20% of the, of the product and the other 80% then goes to the tenant farmer. So Joseph establishes this as the law of the land, which is uh, very gracious. So we see his wisdom. He's far-sighted. He plans for the future. He plans, uh, has planned for contingencies, and he plans for worst-case scenarios. Let me tell you, one of the most important principles of leadership as the head of the home, as the head of working in a company, leaders in a church, is a worse, is people who think in terms of worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenarios happen. What happens if I drop dead tomorrow? What's the plan? Do we have a plan? I don't think we do. We ought to have a plan. We ought to have a plan. We ought to think these things through. What Anything can happen. Something can kill in an automobile accident tomorrow. Uh, your husband, you can get killed in an automobile accident tomorrow. You provide it for your family. You have life insurance. You have health insurance. You have burial plan. You have, have we filled out the living will? All those different things. See, that's wisdom. It is thinking in terms of reality and worst-case scenarios. Several years ago, a number of years ago now, um, I got caught between jobs and needed to make some money, so I went to work for a funeral home, and I sold pre-need funerals. 
One thing I realized, you don't, people don't, everybody needs one. Nobody wants to face it. It's amazing how many people say, oh, and they just dismiss it. I'll just put my body in a, in a hefty bag and throw me by the side of the road. They really, and, and people believe that because they don't want to deal with the reality of a worst case scenario. What happens if you're unemployed tomorrow and you don't get a job for three years? Have you saved money to prepare for that? A good and wise leader plans for the future, plans for worst case scenarios, and has a plan in place and works the plan. That's exactly what Joseph has done. As a result, he's utilized excellent principles of management and government and economics. And the result is that the government comes out very sound in Egypt. But the people have not. They have failed at the level of individual responsibility. And the result is that they become enslaved to the government. And they lose their freedom. They lose their property. And they lose everything because they didn't prepare for future disasters. Now we come to the last section in verses 27 to 31, which is where... Israel makes Joseph swear to return his body to the land of his fathers. And this is where the writer begins to use foreshadowing in order to prepare us for what will happen eventually when we uh, get into the events in the book of Exodus. Israel, that is Jacob, his name that emphasizes his uh, spiritual position before God, dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and he had there they had possessions, and they grew, and they multiplied exceedingly. Actually, that says they acquired property, they had possessions. So in contrast to the short-sighted Egyptians who had to sell all their property to the government, the Jews have been given all this land up in Goshen, and they used their position to acquire more property so they position themselves in, in a position of wealth. That will come back to haunt them because when there's a massive administrative, administration change and a new pharaoh comes in a couple hundred years later who doesn't know Joseph, probably from a totally different ethnic group of people, there's jealousy and the result is that the Jews are all enslaved. But that's another story 200 years from now. The point here is that the Jews that Israel and his people are blessed by God. They acquire property in the midst of the crisis, whereas the, in contrast, the, the Egyptians have to sell all their property and they enslave themselves to the Pharaoh. Verse 28, we're told that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So he, he comes to Egypt when Joseph is approximately 40 and he lives until the time that uh, Joseph is 57. So for 17 years, that's the same amount of time Joseph lived in his father's house back in chapter 37. When Joseph was 17, he left. So there's 17 years with his father at the beginning and 17 years with his father at the end. Then the time drew near that Israel should die. He called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight... Please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. This is a way of swearing an oath that was extremely uh, somber and serious where you'd put one, the person who was swearing would put his hand on a person's thigh. 
They didn't have the scriptures to put their hand on the Bible. But it's the same significance. And he makes him swear to let me lie with my fathers, that you will carry me out of Egypt. See, he's future-oriented. He understands that God is going to take them back to, to the promised land and that they, his bones will not stay in Egypt forever. So he says, when the time comes, swear that you will take me back to my burial place. And Joseph swore that he would do as he has said. So they were going to take him back and he's buried, uh, was buried eventually with the, in the same grave with Abraham and with Isaac in what is now, what is Hebron in the southern part of Egypt, I mean, southern part of Israel in uh, uh, the area given to Judah, later called Judea. So Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. Now, before he dies, he is going to bless the sons and he is going to give them a prophecy. This is the uh, subject of chapter 48 and 49 before we come to the conclusion of the book. There's a lot to cover in terms of the prophetic significance in chapter 49. That'll take some time to go through that. So this is a great place to pause because next week I'll be on vacation. Ike will be here on Tuesday night. And then the next week will be the Chafer Pastors Conference. And that reminds me of one announcement that there will be a meeting for all volunteers for the Chafer Conference is coming Sunday uh, following the worship service. So don't forget also that Saturday night you get to set your clocks forward because it is uh, the spring. They've moved up daylight savings time. So that's going to be great for all those people who are coming here to the conference. The next week they're going to, it's going to be light later. The sun's going to be up. It's going to be warm. Those people coming here from places where it's 20 and 30 degrees still, they're just going to love Houston. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for what we studied this evening, that we would be challenged and come to understand what it means to truly forgive people that we're all sinners. None of us are any better than anybody else and that we all stand in need of grace. And that as redeemed people who understand grace, we more than any, any others need to exhibit grace toward uh, those who have harmed us, hurt us, those who have uh, caused pain and suffering as much as they may not deserve it. We have to be reminded that we did not deserve our own salvation. That is the pattern. Father, pray that we would understand the wisdom in planning as Joseph exhibited, that we might do the same in terms of our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.